Welcome to Inside America's Minds, a series of original podcasts created and hosted by clinical psychologist, Dr. Jody J. DeLuca. Inside America's Minds features fascinating conversations with everyday people like you and me and their extraordinary experiences. Join us for this thought-provoking episode on Inside America's Minds. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Inside America's Minds. This is the last show for the season for 2021, and what a year. Today, I have the privilege of having Lisa Nelson, licensed professional counselor, who is also a counselor in the community in which I have a privilege to have a private practice. Lisa, thank you so much for being on Inside America's Minds. I was so thrilled when you said, I'll do it, yes, because I really think the audience and I think the American people need to hear, need to hear about how the year has been from a mental health perspective, what to look forward to in the new year, to establish some goals. So thank you for being here. Oh, Jody, thank you so much for inviting me. This is just, I'm very honored to get to be here. Thanks again. Well, I want to start from the beginning as to what, what interested you and led you into our field of mental health, behavioral health. Well, I guess uh, I think personally that um, this isn't really something that you step into lightly. This is definitely something that you step into as, um, I don't know, I guess for me, it kind of just felt like it was always just my calling. Um, I feel like I've been doing this work since I was about five. At least that's what my mom says. She said that, you know, this is something I've been doing with her, helping her with lots of different things. My friend said that, you know, when I was young as well. So I just think this is, you know, this is my gift. This is what I'm, the work that I'm supposed to be doing in the world. Um, but definitely didn't come easy and definitely mm. isn't um, an easy career to choose. Um, so you really have to be, you know, it really has to be centered in your heart, not necessarily in your mind or pocketbook or other things that really needs to just kind of come from a need to do that in your soul. And I couldn't agree with you more. A lot of people think, oh, it's easy to be a therapist. And it's not um, yeah. for many reasons, which we're going to get into. Now, you own Watershed Counseling. Mm -hmm. I do. Here, here in Erie, Colorado. And I love what you put up on your psychology today, but also your website. This is what you say. These are difficult times. It's hard to find a place where you are seen and important. You matter. Your thoughts and perspective, I'm sorry, your thoughts and perspectives are valuable. Each individual is unique. So no one form of therapy works for all. Talk to us a little bit about that, Lisa. Well, you know, I think um, just a real basic piece of what humans need. We need to be seen and we need to be known and we need to be loved even though, right? So somebody deeply knows us, right? They're going to see the, kind of the ugly underbelly of who we are, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we need to be known and loved even though someone sees those ugly underbelly kind of things. And um, I think that's a real important piece of the core of, of what it is to be human. 
And we put on so many masks and so many layers of, you know, trying to distance ourselves from that. And society creates a lot of that as well. So I wanted that specific piece to be about, you know, shedding those pieces and just being authentically who we are. So that's kind of where that came from. Um, you know, I wanted people to know that when they're with me, that they're, I'm right here, right? I'm, you're the only person I'm talking to. You're the most important, right? And you know that. That's the work, right? Um, everything else has to go away. Every other noise, every other thought in our brains, it has to be, I'm right here with you. But, you know, that's so interesting because when I am with you, like when we're consulting on cases or just enjoying dinner together, you are right there. You are, I always feel like, you hear me. And I, the feedback I get from clients that I've referred is, she's there, she hears, she gets it, she understands. Uh, We're moving forward. And I think, yeah, as a therapist, we have to be there 110%. And part of our training, which you know, is, is that unconscious bias or stopping our own personal you know, intrusive thoughts from coming in that might be triggered from clients or patients. You have spent so many years in the mental health profession. What is the biggest challenge that you see? Um, I think for me personally, um, the challenges have really, really brought about a different sense of, of who I am as a counselor because of COVID. Um, I, I myself is pretty intuitive and I can sort of read the room and, and you know read the subconscious things that are going on. Um, I can't do that so well through video. And so that was a big challenge for me. I also read a lot of body language, right? You mm -hmm. can see you're up of me. You can't read a lot of my body language. Um, so that's, that was a big, big, big challenge for me. And now that I'm back in my office with masks and six feet of distance and lots and lots of cleaning to make sure that I'm <laughs> everybody's safe. Like half of my job anymore is about cleaning, right? Which products, how quickly can I do it? It's been really interesting. Um, but anyway, I think it's been really um, different to start to read more of the body language and read people's eyes more than their face. Yeah. yeah. And I think the part that's been most um, really disconcerting and hard for me is I've been able to meet those challenges, I think. I feel like I'm doing okay within it. I'm not sure, but I feel like I am. Um, I think the hardest part for me is just, all right, the idea of therapy is to unmask, right? Mm. Get to the basis of it. It's to get to the part of what someone is, you know, there to work on, no matter what the topic, no matter what we're working on, while they're sitting in my office with a mask, right? So it's, it's an it's a, it's a automatic disconnect when I'm trying so, so hard to connect, you see what I mean? I do. I do. And, you know, seeing facial expressions is a major way, especially, well, visually, that we read other people's thoughts and emotions. And like you said, I, and so profoundly said, is when that is taken away, whether it be via a virtual platform and teletherapy or with a mask, we we have to up it. We have to be even more attentive to the expressions of the eyes or even the little subtle body movements that we can see in our office six feet away with mask or again via teletherapy. And I think that's changed the course of therapy for not only clients, but for us as therapists. And I'm proud of us as therapists, and I'm even more proud that our clients, our patients are willing 
to do that with us, to, to face these challenges for the greater good for themselves and all. Absolutely. Totally what, agree. You specialize um, in different areas. Tell us about your areas of specialty. I know most recently you've also trained, now you're seeing children as well, which I think is incredible. And the adolescent population and the pediatric populations are underserved. And tell us a little bit about that. Well, I, um, my overall um, biggest um, group that I work with um, has to do with trauma. And so mm -hmm. I started out just recognizing, you know, even in my internship and, and even before grad school, um, I, I began noticing that, you know, trauma doesn't discriminate. It's, it's, it's broad spectrum. So I wanted to get trauma-informed and then um, practicing EMDR um, pretty early on in my, in my uh, practice. Can, can you tell us, Lisa, I'm sorry to interrupt, can you define or the acronym EMDR? Because a lot of people don't know what that means and what it is. Sure. Um, EMDR is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it's a process of, of uh, working through trauma in a way that doesn't re-traumatize people. Right. If you sit in an office and you're talking about all of your trauma, you're going to be feeling it. You're going to be experiencing it. You're going to be taking it home and really living in it again. And EMDR is a process of allowing your brain to do the work that it needs to by, you know, movements of left and right in order to create a, a greater sense of understanding. And, you know, whatever those traumas are that kind of live on the top of our brain has a tendency to kind of shake that out and bring that to a lower part of our brain. So it's not hip hypnotic, but it has a tendency to kind of feel that way, right? We're moving stuff from the left and the right, thinking deeply about what those traumas are. But you're not having to tell me every detail, therefore it's not traumatizing again. So it's not invasive. Not at uh, all. It, the client does not have to verbalize exactly what they're experiencing as the recollecting or thinking about the trauma. Now, are you working with certain instruments with your finger? I know there's different methods to EMDR. Yeah, the, it initially started with just fingers, right? You're watching someone right. moving back and forth. And then as technology kind of came in, there are buzzers that have a, a light frequency, just that buzzes in your hand. So you hold one in your left and one in your right. There are light bars that you can watch that kind of go across the screen. Um, you could also even be um, tapping on some the back of someone's shoulders, or you could have them tap on their knees. So if I'm doing this, you know, through um, telehealth, I'm asking them to tap lightly on their knees so that, you know, we're continuing that. I'm marking the time and I'm asking them to, you know, pay attention um, to what's going on inside as opposed to the screen. Um, so it can be done electronically, but I, I find that I'm much better and I feel like I'm a, a better practitioner of it when it's in person. But um, that was my first layer of, of trauma work. And um, as I was doing more of that, I thought, you know, if this is going to be something that I do to be able to help, then I need to be um, very well versed in working with everybody that experiences trauma. So adults, adolescents, and now I've added children into that. So, um, you know, just want to be broad spectrum in terms of the, the population, but also very specific in terms of, of that part of my work. Um, never did I think that I'd be doing that. I thought I would be working specifically just with kids, you know, play therapy, doing some things to help with them, you know, maybe some behavioral things that came in, uh, things like that. Um, but, you know, in my internship, I saw an awful lot of couples and mm. 
just kind of fell in love with the idea of couples. Um, I think I started working with couples very weirdly. Um, <laughs> Tell us. <laughs> I, I, you know, um, when I was in grad school, I was older than uh, a lot of the other kids that were in school there, right? Just out of college kids. And um, because of that, they wanted somebody that was also married. So I was the only one that was married in grad school. So I got all of the, um, I got all of the married couples. And I kept thinking, gosh, this is hard. And people throughout grad school always said, the hardest things to do are to work with adolescents and to work with couples. And I think part of my brain went, mm-hmm, watch me. <laughs> And that's how I know you. Watch me. I'll do it. Something so or somebody says no, you're like, watch me. I love it. So I think, you know, I have a little bit of that, that in me, right? I think that's, uh, that was a piece that kind of made things move forward for me. But yeah, I think um, couples are a lot of energy, right? It's an awful lot of, you know, his thoughts, her thoughts, their thoughts, you know, whatever uh, demographics a couple are, it really can be a lot of energy. So, um, yeah, I'm very drained after working with couples. Yeah. I, I would agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just work really hard to, you know, make sure that I'm, uh, I, I work really hard to make sure I'm putting them in my schedule in a time when I'm going to have the energy. And I don't do a lot of couples back to back. I'll do maybe one a day or one every other day, just because it's so much energy. But um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. A lot of, you know, a lot of trauma and then couples. Um, and you I, also do a lot of grief counseling as well. I do. Um, I kind of feel like, you know, um, grief and, and, and trauma have a tendency to, you know, kind of impact all of us, right? We're all going to be grieving different things throughout our life, whether it's, you know, the loss of a relationship, the loss of a job, um, the loss of a loved one, or even a pet, all can be significant and important. So I kind of feel like that's a, that's a good standard, right? That's a, that for me kind of felt like a baseline, like I need to at least be doing those pieces. So um, I guess in that sense, I'm, you know, kind of pretty spread out in terms of the type of things that I look at. I know a lot of people have very narrow focus and, um, I kind of feel like mine's a little bit broader, um, maybe also selfishly because I like the variety, right? Mm-hmm. Lots of different things coming into my office and not, you know, not only talking about trauma or only, only parents or only couples. Um, I really like the variety. Um, my office is set up so that I'm moving around depending on what clients are needing. Um, so that's really helpful for me too. So yeah, I think the the idea of kind of being a jack of all trades doesn't necessarily fit for me, but but it kind of does. Yeah, just kind of pieces. Well, and you're certified in EMDR, which uh, not everybody is. I don't go near it because I really feel because you're tapping into trauma within that human being and their brain, their whole being, I really, you know, think individuals need to be certified. They need to be trained. Uh, they need to stay within that scope. And so I commend you for that for the certification and your license. What people don't understand is, at least in the state of Colorado until recently, you know, there was a lot of people practicing that were not licensed counselors and the licensure process, which you and I know is so rigorous. It's Mm -hmm. a rite of passage. The license protects the public. If somebody sees a therapist that doesn't have that, there's, you know, first of all, the training's not there. And there's nothing to protect them if something goes wrong. So 
what would you what with with your certifications with your licensure let me, let me just step aside here what do you think is the biggest stereotype about therapists in general um Hmm, that's a very interesting question. Uh, I think what comes to mind initially, and, and I'm sure we'll get into this deeper, is a sense that I'm like constantly reading people's mind, like I'm constantly, you know, like looking in, in. If, I, if I meet somebody at a dinner party or meet somebody that doesn't know me, um, when I tell them what I do, they kind of go, oh, and they walk away or they ask a hundred questions. <laughs> yeah, it's one extreme or the either. It's, oh, I have, you know, and they're going to just really attack and, and need to ask 20,000 questions or they're out. And for me, it, it's been kind of an interesting thing. Um, I know a lot of therapists, I'm a part of a couple of um, other therapy groups from all over the country of other therapists and people have a tendency to kind of downplay it, right? To say things like, oh, um, I, work in, I work in an area of health, right? Without really disclosing what they do if they wanna not have to you know, really be in the space of discussing it. Um, I do think people have a tendency to think that we are odd um, that we <laughs> we're kind of an odd piece of society, and I guess um, I'm fine with that. But um, you know, I think some of the stereotypes are that we never turn our brain off, right? That we're always right in that eyeglass trying to read everyone's thoughts, um, and I certainly can't be doing that. That would be way too much energy, right? I need to be able to turn that off. Um, and I think for me, that's why I never worked from home. I always wanted to have you know kind of that separation between my work and my home. You know, I need the, the quiet, you know, um, safe space of my home to be separate from my work. Um, and I, I think that that's a really important thing for me just to create that, you know, that distance and, and create more of a sense of self-care for myself. Which um, I think is vital as therapists. I think we have to practice self-care. I get asked a lot, like, well, how do you do it? You hear so many sad or, or bad things. Yeah, but there's so many wonderful things about working with people and seeing the progress or, or getting them where they need to be. But it's a good question. And I think it's part of our training. But I think it's also something that we have to check and self-monitor ourselves all the time, especially with this pandemic, uh, you know, since it started now, we're coming up on two years, uh, it's been seamless for our discipline, for the fields of mental health, which is also known as behavioral health. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, just for me personally, there's been a, a huge, huge uptake in the number of calls, the number of, you know, I can't find people to place people right? There's not enough people around to refer people. I'm, you know, constantly reaching out to all of you guys and to everybody, you know, across the state to try and find spaces for people because yeah. it's, it's really, we're definitely in a crisis state. We absolutely are. We absolutely, mental health is in a crisis. And, you know, there's a good reason for that, right? Um, not only are people seeing the need, but I think the stigma is going down. Yes. There's and as we're changing that stigma, I think it becomes sort of a, a question of, you know, that's wonderful, but we don't have enough of us that can meet the need right now. So um, every time I'm driving by any university that has a, a psychology department, I keep saying to myself and saying to them, hurry up, hurry up, graduate as quickly as possible, you are so needed, right? Hurry up, hurry up. Um, it really is an a, a interesting state of, of time right now, right? We're kind of at, a, at the 
beginning or possibly the ending of, of therapy as we know it, right? We get exactly. to of, of what it's like to be doing this mast and doing telehealth. Um, none of that's going to go away, right? We're going to be in this for the long haul. And I agree with you. And I'm going to give a shout out to all the mental health and uh, even licensed clinical social workers, all the interns, all the students, the new generation of therapists, we need you. The world needs you more than ever. And it's a global thing that's going on. Um, I am seeing more and more men than ever before. So I agree with you that that stigma is changing. Uh, in fact, at some times in the private practice, I have more men than women. What would you say with the pandemic has been the number one population that you see a need for counseling or the calls that you've received? Um, most of my calls right now are adolescents. Mm -hmm. And um, now that I'm, I'm working uh, with younger kids as, as young as seven, I'm getting more calls for that. And I'm also getting more um, calls for, you know, high levels of anxiety, um, mostly in couples. So adolescents and couples would be the biggest piece right now. And, you know, it, it really has been an interesting trajectory when something in our town has sort of created a sense of people being aware of difficulties. Like uh, during the pandemic, there have been three different opportunities when there's either been a suicide or somebody that's barricaded themselves in the house, right? Within the next two weeks from that, calls are off the chart. People, you know, just checking in, do I need to come in? You know, um, what do you know? Is this something I should be coming to you? You know, a lot of feeling, fielding those kind of calls. And every single time those numbers go really, really high for me for about a week and a half. Um, and not all of them necessarily need to come in. It's just, they need it. They need to know, they need a reference to, oh my gosh, this happened. I'm feeling really overwhelmed by it. Um, so I definitely think we're all experiencing lots of Lots of strangeness. What are what kind of calls are you? Uh, pretty much the same. A lot of anxiety, a lot of panic, a lot of post-traumatic stress, yeah. um, a lot of just I don't know where to go from here. Uh, right. Relationships falling apart. Individuals looking at their future without knowing what to do. Everything has changed since the pandemic a lot of anxiety, panic, a lot of anger surrounding to vaccinate, non-vaccinate. Oh my goodness, yes. And, and then two years ago, well, not even two years ago, it was the political landscape and the insurrection, I think, wow. And then the division, the division between the country and then the Black Lives Matter and then the crime rates throughout the country and the recent shootings. And I think the world, but just keeping it focused on our country, the United States, I think it's in chaos, it's in flux, and it's in a very vulnerable position. And I think healthcare in general, but then you take the dimension of mental health and behavioral health, I, I think we, unfortunately, through everything that is going on, we are finally getting recognition of the significance of how important it is. Um, I know other colleagues in our town of Erie have had kids as young as eight years old admitted into psychiatric facilities for suicidal ideation or attempts or substance abuse. There has been a significant increase in depression in all age groups, but especially the young, which is heartbreaking. And again, there's not enough of us. And having to tell people 
I'm at capacity. I, you know, but here's what I'll do. I will, I will give you a list. I will do the research mm-hmm. to get you, hopefully, to someone who can get you to someone or help you. And I know that's put a lot of strain. Have you felt the same? Yeah, I definitely feel the strain. Um, I've, I've actually been really, I don't know if scared or worried about whether or not I should actually be expressing on either, you know, um, Psych Today profiles, uh, my website, or, you know, just in my phone message, whether or not I'm, I'm full or not, because it kind of makes me feel like I'm not doing the best service to the community mm. if I'm answer the phone. I'm not able to give them resources. So, so far I've chosen not to in most formats. I think um, maybe I chose one of them to just, you know, notice, but you know, that doesn't mean don't call me, right? If I can help to, to be a resource to get them what they might need. And sometimes if it's a parent that needs to talk, just me spending a half an hour, if I have that much time, just to talk with them, they feel better, you know, even though they can't become a client or, or it's, it's not a good fit for mm-hmm. me. Just giving them that chance to great express what's going on can be a, a really good, you know, cathartic outlet for them. And um, hopefully I can, you know, give them several resources to be able to look at. But it's definitely a challenge. It's definitely a hard thing to, you know, consistently be saying, I can't be of help to you right now. Um, yeah, it, it kind of is heartbreaking that, you know, the need is there. We've been, you know, we in the mental health field have been forever trying to knock on that door and help the you know, the general society to recognize that what yeah. we do is significant and we can, we want to be contributing, right? Right. When is wanting us, we don't have the time or the capacity to be able to do it. There's just not enough of us. And, and we don't get the support that we need, not even, let's say, from insurance companies, but just from the federal government. I think that needs to change. Uh, I, I always say this about our country, and I love our country. It's a privilege to be an American. But I'm, I'm very upset and don't understand, well, why healthcare and mental health is so under addressed. Why? When that is such a need. Yeah. What do you think is the biggest tragedy in our country today, Lisa? Hmm. I think it's, it's how we have, you know, the division you've, you've discussed, right? Whether it's having to do with, you know, um, inequalities on any level um, or how we treat each other, how we look at things politically. Um, it's, uh, I think that's the worst thing that's happening right now. You know, the division isn't just within our country, it's at our kitchen tables, mm-hmm. right? Our families, it's, it's creating divides all over the place. Um, it certainly is creating divides within my family and um, those things are really hard. Um, you know, I, I think it's, um, you know, we're adding salt to the wound here, right? We're already very wounded people. We're already, you know, trying very hard to do our best and in, in, under the best of situations. And now with, you know, the divisions politically and the divisions in terms of how we see and treat each other, we've just added more layers to it. It's like it's a wound that we can't heal. What do you think is our strength right now as a nation? I think our strength as a nation is the same as it's always been, right? It's, it's the individual's ability to rise above. And I strongly believe in that. I strongly believe that, you know, there's always hope. And I think, you know, America kind of stands for that concept of, you know, rising up yourself and creating a sense of hope. Um, you know, I, I still believe in those values. I still think that that's an important part of, you know, remembering who we are. 
um, while still recognizing the difficulty that we've caused and, you know, recognizing a greater sense of history and being honest about that. I think those things will certainly heal us, but, um, you know, there's definitely divisions around how to do that best. And I certainly don't know the answer. I just know that, you know, the healing needs to happen. But I definitely believe that we still are hopeful as a nation and that we as individuals have a tendency to rise up. And, and I think that might be why mental health is finally becoming a, you know, something that people are, are willing to look at, right? Mm -hmm. like, I can't manage these things on my own. I can't get this from my doctor. Pills won't necessarily be helpful, although sometimes they are. You know, I need to actually be in a room with somebody and talking deeply about the issues that are affecting me. Um, so I see that strength as, as coming forward a little. And on your website, I love this, which you have posted, to walk beside you in the difficult times, to nourish and guide you, to help you imagine a future with hope and well-being. This is my plan for you. Wow. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, I just, you know, I think it just kind of speaks to we need, you know, sometimes we all need people to come alongside us and to be able to walk through difficulties and you know, to, to send them off to have a great rest of their life. I think that that's, that is our job. And you, you, you know, you talk about an experience also in the website, and I'm going to quote you again, that a lot of people, when they first come into therapy, they're like, I've never done this before. I'm afraid. They're anxious. And, and you kind of encapsulate that that feeling and those thoughts by so many. You say, you woke up in the middle of the night, fearful and confused about how you got to this point in your life. As you become more aware of your surroundings, you feel even worse. This was not your plan. This way of living is not even something that you could have imagined in your wildest dreams. How did this happen? And that is the experience of so many, especially with this pandemic. And then you go on to say, when difficulty happens, as it does for all of us, we have choices about how we respond. We can simply not allow whatever happened to affect us and move on with our lives, or the event can rock us to our very core. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think, you know, through the pandemic, we've seen so many people be rocked in so many different ways, right? Yeah. Just lost relationships being lost being you know torn apart from from our families um, all of those things happening and you know I think that is the part of the human condition and you know I think I was trying to speak to there the idea of okay we can either just muddle through you know buck up and just keep moving on or we can you know take a pause enough to really heal what's going on in order to move forward better right either way you're moving forward it's just a question of how well you choose to move forward and I think hope, that factor of hope that you previously mentioned is so critical. We tend to lose hope. Yeah. We the do. most challenging patients you've ever had in your career to date? Oh, um, wow. Good question. <laughs> um, I think I've had, um, I think the, the population in particular that I find most challenging, but also you know, is a growing piece of, of what we're experiencing and, and seeing clinically is uh, narcissistic people. And um, narcissism, I think, you know, when we think about it from a clinical standpoint, they say it's like 1.1 or 2% of the total population, which 
I find to be ridiculous. Um, and may very well be because of the political standpoint and also because it's become part of the, the cultural vernacular to, you know, re refer to someone as being narcissistic. Um, How would you define it according to our criteria with our diagnostic manual of mental yeah. disorders that we go, you know, how we diagnose and then treat? How would you define narcissism? Because I agree with you. I think it's a term like schizophrenia was many years ago. Oh, he's schizophrenic. She's schizophrenic. Today, it's narcissism. And then Robert O'Hare, who's one of the experts on sociopathy, would say that 25% of sociopaths, which have that component of narcissism, are in prison. The rest are walking around. How would you define it? So I think, you know, for me, it's not necessarily the, the fact that someone is manipulative. Because in a very real sense, we all have that as part of us, right? We all have a tendency to do or say what we need to in order to get what we want. That's just part of being human. It really comes down to, um, you know, whether or not someone is um, creating a greater sense of difficulty for people around them consistently and causing enough harm that it kind of puts somebody in a sense of, I don't know what's right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Trying to see that well you know so um someone comes in and says my my husband is is doing these things right he's um he's consistently you know being in charge of money but won't let me see the checkbook um he's not allowing me to you know participate in things or he's um telling me who i can and can't be friends with you know he's creating more walls for me where i'm blocked off from the world and uh, those kind of things really kind of scream to me that somebody is you know working very hard to control someone on every level. So, you know, um, the, the outside perspectives of how that looks might, might be different, but if it's, if it's feeling more and more closed off by the other person, then, then I kind of see that as, as the greater characteristics of, of narcissism. Um, so I do see that more in my office. I'm very surprised by those numbers. Um, right about, right around the, the beginning of the pandemic, and they were, people started to refer to you know, that is a, a common, um, the vernacular changing, that we were talking about it more. I kept seeing more and more people coming into my office, men and women, right? We kind of see that characteristic as, as male, but, you know, I had a few clients that were um, male clients who were being controlled by a, a narcissistic wife. So it, it definitely goes across, you know, across um, that boundary. So I really feel like that, that really was, for me, a really hard and eye-opening um, perspective because, you know, I always thought of that as very, a very minor part of our society. And that certainly isn't true. And, you know, when I think about like 1% of society and me seeing eight or nine clients at any given time mm -hmm. who are, either, you know, exhibiting signs or are in a relationship with someone like that, that doesn't mean that those numbers don't equal, right? I should maybe see one every couple of years if it's 1%. Yeah, right? I agree with you. I think there's a lot more. And again, uh, in our field, there's, there's clusters of different diagnoses that have very similar uh, uh, characteristics, but there's a hallmark difference. So uh, just to clarify on what I said previously, in, in your opinion, what would be the difference between a sociopath or a sociopathic slash antisocial personality disorder and a narcissist? Because I get that question all the time. In your opinion, what would you say to a client who, who would ask you that? So I think for me, sociopathic um, tends to look like 
um, manipulating things for their benefit, not in an, um, not in an emotional or a, a mental sense that it's going to be more of an, uh, um, an outward sense of, of lying, stealing, you know, doing things that are a little bit more against the law. Mm -hmm. Sociopaths have a tendency to, you know, be in that realm a little bit more, but a, a narcissist is going to be a little bit more of the manipulation, the underlying, um, you know, underneath it, um, really creating some difficulty for the people that are most close to them, right? It's, it's the wife and the husband, it's the kids that they're controlling so much um, and, and pulling so much closer. Um, and I really think empathy here is a big, a big difference for me, right? Sociopaths inability to be empathetic, but yet I see a, a narcissist as being able to recognize, um, empathy and use it to their benefit. Does that make okay. sense? Yeah, it does. It makes sense. The kind of the, that kind of differentiate those from me. The rates of suicide since the pandemic, have you seen an increase? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, attempts, um, not completions. Um, it's just in, in, in the population that I, I see more hospitalizations. Um, I've been more involved with hospitals, um, helping with mental health um, in the state of Colorado than I ever thought I would be. Um, you know, I now have my favorite hospitals. <laughs> um, I never thought I would need to be thinking mm. about it so often that, you know, I can say mm. I like this one just, just because of how my clients have, you know, shown up yeah. and well with or not. Um, but yeah, I think that's the hardest thing for me. That's the piece that I have a hard time not bringing home. Yeah. And, you, and of course, the increase in substance abuse, self-medicating, the increase in domestic violence, including partners as well as children. What do you tell people when you, they have to be admitted for their own safety? How do you deliver that? I know as therapists, that's very difficult. And we have to rule on the side of caution. As licensed therapists, we have duty to warn either if someone is a harm to themselves or to someone else or is not able to care for self. But how do you deliver that information? Well, um, I talk about it way ahead of time. Um, I talk about it from the day that they become a client, right? I talk about you know, the idea that I'm never going to tell anybody about the things we talk about that stays right here between us, unless you're hurting yourself, someone else is hurting you, you know, of an, a national threat, right? Those kind of things that we're required to say. But I say those from the beginning and, and anytime there's a, a thought or a feeling that it might be leaning towards that, I'm, I'm once again reminding them, right? Not as a don't tell me, but just if we're walking towards that, I want to remind you of, of the space that we need to be in. Okay. Um, then I just go super directive. I become much more, um, I don't know, I guess I feel a little bit more like a principal or a police officer when I'm in that state. Um, I feel like my adrenaline runs in a pretty specific way and I'm just straight up. This is what needs to happen. Here are the three different ways that that can happen, right? Um, either I call, call the police and we get them involved to get you, you know, sent, get to the hospital. You can on your own choose to get there. If it's an adolescent, I make sure that there's an adult in the room so that we're talking through this. And I'm not letting them leave the room until they've made the decision about which way that goes. Oh, and, and I, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, my documentation has to be off the chart, right? I need to Absolutely. be really, really making sure that I'm crossing my T's and I'm documenting everything that I'm saying well. Um, and then I'm, in, I'm, you know, 
uh, reaching out to the hospital, making sure that they know what's happening. You know, I keep really close tabs on what's happening with them throughout that process. Parents are really great at reaching out to make sure that I know, you know, which doctors they're working at with which facility, you know, which medications they're trying or those kind of things. I wanna stay really on top of what's happening. Um, and then after care, right, then immediately after they come out of that, I want them in my office within 24 hours. Um, even if I'm having to move clients around in order to do that, right? Want to make sure that they're feeling safe as they're coming home. Because, you know, I think it's um, I think it's hard for them to go in, but I think it's even harder to home to, come, um, to reintegrate. To what what now? A lot of people they fear the unknown of being admitted into a psychiatric unit or hospital or facility. What what can you tell people about that to make that experience? not so scary. Yeah, um, I, I think I, I kind of walk them through the idea of, you know, this is gonna feel initially like you're going to the hospital for, you know, they're gonna do some diagnostic stuff. You're gonna sit in a room with, with someone that kind of walks you through what this is. They're gonna make the determination on whether or not it's safe for you to stay home or if you need to be admitted. Um, they're gonna walk you through that and walk your, your family through that. So it's gonna be, you know, like a, an office visit at a doctor's office. But once you're admitted, it doesn't feel like you're sitting in a hospital room, right? You have a space that you're sleeping, but, you know, there's a lot of group work that you do, you know, in bigger rooms where everybody's sitting in a circle, you know, chairs around, everybody talking together. There'll be individual times where you're talking with the doctor about medication and if that's necessary, you know, you're sharing meals with other people that are there. Um, it's not a hospital. It's not, you know, it's not like anything else, but it's not nearly as scary as people think it is. And I've had clients come back and say, you were right. It wasn't nearly as bad as that. Or, you know, it was actually parts of it were very pleasant. Or I made a couple of friends, people that are going through the same thing as me, right? Kind of that sense of, of empathy we get and that sense of, you know, group thought that I'm not alone. And I think uh, for a lot of people, they come back and they actually feel better about their experience, right? If they've heard really awful, horrible stories while they're in there, they kind of go, uh, mine isn't quite so bad, right? And I think that that's super good for us sometimes to recognize that, you know, our situation could be worse than it is, right? Not that that's end all and be all, but I definitely think that that could be a helpful piece for people to recognize. And I, I've also had clients who have said, I'm not ready to leave yet. Mm. Uh, I need more time. And that takes a lot of courage as well. Now, what do you what do you say to clients and patients to overcome the stigma of not only having a diagnosis of depression, of suicide attempts, of anxiety or or thought disorders or or whatever? What do you tell them to accept themselves once they've been admitted? or discharged or being given a diagnosis or have been prescribed medications, which sometimes I agree, they are necessary. And a lot of what I tell people is this is for now, not forever. Right. For now, we need to deal day by day, but I'm interested in what you tell people. Well, um, I think for you know just a diagnosis, um, I don't think I want people to feel like they are defined by a diagnosis right? That this isn't who you are. This is a piece of who you are, right? And, you know, if we, if we think about a mental illness in, in terms of like the genetic component and that being a, you know, a fairly decent percentage, 
um, it's important for them to think of, you know, this diagnosis is no different or something that I can control any more than I can control the color of my eyes. Mm -hmm. This is just a piece of who you are, but it is not all of who you are. And, you know, the medication may be able to help us to have a, a clearer conversation about it allow us to work through and get the tools so that you can live your life outside of the medication. Some people need to take medication forever. Some people need to take it just very episodically, you know, when things are at, it, at its worst and move past it pretty quickly. We won't really know that until we, you know, give the medication <laughs> and see if it creates a sense of clarity. Um, I definitely see a big difference, especially with adolescents. Once they have been through all of that, once they have, you know, taken some medication that our conversations are clearer, they're more able to focus and we get the work done, which means yes. out of my office faster, right? And then, you know, titrating back out of the medication and, and being able to live a really wonderful life. So I'm, I'm totally with you, Jody. I don't think medication needs to be thought of as, oh my gosh, I'm so bad that I need to take medication now for the rest of my life, right? It can be done um, in a really beautiful way to just help us to you know, create a sense of steadiness for now, just like crutches would be if you broke your leg. Good right? analogy. What do you tell people that are totally uncomfortable with the idea of medications? So if somebody is really uncomfortable with medication, I kind of start with some, um, you know, nutritional perspective um, or, or dietary things that can be helpful. Um, I'm working right now on a certification in, in um, mental health um, nutrition. And um, I think that that can so be in terms of like, you know, um, probiotics, um, um, omega-3 vitamins, um, magnesium malate in particular, those things that kind of create a, a greater sense of the, you know, the gut-brain barriers um, can be really helpful. So if somebody is very fearful, we'll just kind of start with those things. Um, I'll send them a couple of websites from doctors that have great ideas about, you know, foods and supplements that are helpful because I'm not an expert in that range. So I'll send them that information to see if that's a good place to start if they're fearful of medication. But I'm seeing that we need something that's going to be supplemental here. And you have them follow up with their medical practitioner. Of course. Yeah. To... So, yeah, I don't want to do anything that's outside of my licensing, right? Right. And, and people don't know that, too, for the most part, that we have to navigate. Anybody who's licensed, we have to navigate within the scope of our area of competence what we are trained, what we are certified to do, what we are educated. Um, the hardest day in your life, Lisa, as a therapist? Um, I think it was my first um, adolescent that needed to be admitted. Um, and this was a, a young lady quite a few years ago that, um, you know, had some very big difficulties, not only with her family, but with her sense of self. And um, she came into my office. I think she had been in there. Uh, I think she was there on Monday, and this was a Wednesday. And it was very clear that she was not going to be able to leave my office and still be alive. There was just no way. Um, she sat in there very, very quietly. And um, I asked her father to come in. He had um, luckily just been a couple blocks away. So he came in, and I, I knew that if I allowed the the father to be in charge of this, that they wouldn't end up at the hospital. I'd had enough conversations with the family to know that, you know, medication and anything more than just being in my office was not going to be something that they were going to be willing to do. So um, I had to cancel the rest of my afternoon and actually ended up having the police come and take her to the ER. 
Uh, ER is not far from my office. We could have just walked there, um, but she was not willing to do that. So I'm happy to get, you know, hire people involved mm -hmm. in that. Um, that, was, uh, that was really something for me. Um, since then, um, I actually ran into her at a, at a grocery store about a year ago, and she's doing incredibly well. Um, but, you know, the, the thing that often happens about it, and I think the saddest part of that is, you know, there's a decent amount of research about when we are pushing to that level, we're most likely going to, in, to lose the client as a patient. Mm -hmm. I think that for me was really heartbreaking as well, right? Not only do I not get to see her succeed, right? But I'm having to push very, very hard to be the advocate for her life to continue. Um, I think that, yeah, I, uh, I still carry that one. Those are the ones that stay with us forever. The best day in your life as a therapist? Um, again, working in EMDR, um, I've been working with this, this client for quite a while, some pretty um, difficult um, sexual trauma that she had experienced. And our very last session, there was this lightness about her face. Um, she was through it. She was completely done with it. And she was able to kind of step back as, as most people do in EMDR and look at it from a different lens, look at it from a different perspective. And she said, she said to me, he was not able um, to recognize what he was doing to me. He was not able to recognize how harmful this would be to me. Not to say that she was giving him a pass here, but that she was able to see it from the perspective of, all right, this happened. And that was like the bow that she was putting on it, right? That was the perspective she was choosing to see it in. And she walked out of that room. I swear she was 10 pounds lighter, right? Just the way she carried herself, the way, that, you know, a stronger backbone and just a sense of lightness. And I think that's the reason I do what I do, right? Those are the days where we feel really, really, really connected to our clients and really, I constantly get goosebumps when things like that happen, right? Me too, yeah. Working through something difficult and I can see that the person that caused the harm gets what the other person has just said, like they get it, right? Not they get it, but they get it, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Really connecting, not just from their head, but they're connecting in their heart, right? Goosebumps every time. So I kind of count that. How many days have I been able to, to have goosebumps because of what my clients are, are able to work through? It is a privilege for us to be allowed to influence the lives of people every day. I don't take it lightly, and I know you do not either. I believe hope is such an important factor in moving forward. Yeah. A message of hope you would give to the American people as we look towards 2022, what might that be? Well, I, I definitely think, you know, um, hope is, is ever present. Hope is around us every moment. And I think if we think about things from a mindfulness perspective, right, we start to look around us. We start to notice the things that are around us and with us. And we start to notice that, you know, things aren't maybe as difficult as we think they are. And that maybe we can find some hope within, you know, a flower that's blooming or the fact that we got to wake up today or that, you know, the sun is shining, even though I'm feeling the way that I'm feeling, right? And that those things around us, that sense of, you know, just being mindful about the, those other things outside of our own difficulty can help us to get through, to have the, the, um, 
the forward thought and that the beautiful perspective of I can rise through this. Um, and I definitely think hope is a piece of that, right? It's, it's a, a golden thread that kind of folds through our life. And if we hold on to that hope, we can certainly rise to the occasion to manage our lives better. And, you know, we are humans. We are not, you know, we are not a, a sea turtle that is born in its own shell, gets out of its own shell and works its butt off to try to get back into right? We are humans. Mm -hmm. We have people around us. We're meant to be part of community. So I always think that that's an important thing for us to remember. While we do have independence and we do have the ability to do things on our own, we are not required in any way to do things on our own. We need each other. We are human beings who need the help and support of others. So, you know, reach into that, reach out for that, be looking for that, be, you know, willing to put your hands out and say, I'm in need, right? Because as surely as you're going to be someone in need, you're going to be given the opportunity to give back, right? So that there's this give and take between humans. And that I think creates an additional layer of hope that we can rise above as a society and we could do better than we're doing now. So that is certainly my hope for 2022 that, you know, we as a country and we as a people begin to, you know, look at ourselves and, and create more of a sense of empathy and understanding for what maybe that other side looks like or feels like and try to create a greater sense of empathy, which will help us to be hopeful. Goals. Why are goals important? And what can you recommend to people starting the new year? So I am, I'm always one of those people that, you know, I ask other people what their New Year's resolutions are, <laughs> but I don't really think that they're necessarily very um, helpful unless we're really in it, right? If we're, if we're just thinking about the superficial ones, right? I want to lose 20 pounds. I want to, you know, I want to start to run. I want to do all of those kind of things. Those are, those are nice, but I always think about goals as being a little bit more connected to our heart and a little bit more connected to the, to the soul of the person that we are. Um, and so from that perspective, I think goals should be, you know, a little bit deeper and a little bit more connected to the purpose behind those, right? Um, my, my greatest sense of what I need right now is X, Y, and Z, right? I need more connection to people. I need more relationships with my family. You know, I need to feel very fulfilled and very, um, worthy of the work that I'm doing, right? Those are, those are bigger things that sort of connect to, you know, the real mm -hmm. spirit person as opposed to something very superficial. Um, so I, I think those tend to be goals that kind of make sense and kind of really speak to the, the human perspective um, much more than the, the superficial. So I tend to lean towards those things in terms of helping people manage and, you know, look at something deeper than just the, the external or the superficial. A message, a message that you would like to leave for America. Hmm. Um, that's a very good question. I, I think it's always going to be the message of hope, right? That our current circumstances don't equal where we should be, right? No matter what's going on with us today, that, that tomorrow can be better. That if we choose to live in the concept of hope and lean into the idea of, of reaching into community to be able to, to do the things that we need, whether it's, you know, mental, physical, emotional, whatever is needed, that if we lean into that and, and, and truly ask for the help with arms wide open and, and willing to really accept that help, that we can create great change. Um, I see everything that's happening right now in our society as I'm hoping it will just look like a big blip, right? Mm -hmm. Over time, we will create the changes that we need to. And I, 
absolutely believe in the human spirit and, and the American spirit that we can create that change. Absolutely. Where can people reach you, Lisa? I know you don't have, a, do you have availability right now? I know that changes, it changes for us almost daily. Yeah, it really is interesting. And the new people that have come into me, it's just been a question of timing, right? If they call at the right time and I'm finishing with a client, right? Um, I finish as many clients as I, as I bring in pretty often. And, you know, that's because I don't see therapy as something that we should be doing forever, mm -hmm. right? It is as I agree. we need to be doing it when we need it, but we need to be working towards being sustainable on our own, right? So I'm always, I always tell people I'm trying to work myself out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Lisa Nelson, licensed professional counselor. Thank you so much. What a privilege to have you on Inside America's Minds. Thank you. And I wish you so much peace and joy. And I am so grateful that you are a colleague and that you are part of our behavioral health system. Thank you so much. Jody, I'm very honored to call you a friend and very honored to get to talk to you today. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. You take good care. Godspeed. Happy, happy holidays. Godspeed to you, you too. too. Happy holidays. Bye-bye. This is Dr. Jody J. DeLuca signing off. Take good care, America. Thank you for listening to Inside America's Minds. Don't forget to check out our YouTube channel, Inside America's Minds with Dr. Jody J. DeLuca. The views, information, and opinions expressed on the Inside America's Minds podcast series and on any other related social media pages are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any third party. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional psychological, psychiatric, or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay seeking treatment because of something you have heard on Inside America's Minds or have read on any other related social media pages. For emergency situations, be sure to call 911 or go to the nearest emergency department.